This is Bernard Fraser, and you're listening to Season 2 of The Essence of Cool. He's had a 45-year career of writing, producing, and mixing hits for artists such as The Cure, The Psychedelic Furs, Thompson Twins, Duran Duran, and the list goes on. Of course, I'm talking about the one and only Phil Thornley. And we took a bit of a different approach on this episode. I decided that Phil himself was the essence of cool, so we chatted for an hour and a half about his own fascinating and storied career. So let's jump in to a full 90 minutes with the man known for creating magic in the studio, the extraordinary Phil Thornley. Warning, things will get nerdy. Am I finding you in the swamp? Oh, yeah, I'm in the swamp. The swamp has moved around over the years. It, 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 my dear friend Tony Sito passed away a couple of years ago. He uh, was the lead guitarist in our band, and he figured out how to do, like, uh, overdubbing with two-track, two-two-track. And wherever he was, because the, the studio would move from one location, one... F- you know the guitarist's house to the drummer's house to my house and t- whenever tony was running it it was like budweiser cans cigarette butts <laughs> and so it just became called the swamp wherever it went so 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 i inherited it, it it's actually quite relatively tidy here and no cigarette butts so welcome to the swamp um you'd mentioned the two tracks and uh, something that perhaps you and i share is i spent a lot of time in my younger years uh recording with two tracks i know you had a tiac and a revox i think what was it about fooling around with that that uh, caught your attention? I was already interested in recording, and I'd gotten into Todd Rundgren then. And so the moment Tony left me with the two-track, I um, would just, like, experiment and, uh, uh, and, like, just write something on the spot just to see what would happen if... I played drums and then I played a piano and then I played bass and then uh, and then sang, usually putting everything through a phase pedal that we had right. to kind of like make it sound more like the seven, I guess like prog rock or something. So um, I think it was sort of like, um, oh, this might sound a bit pretentious, but it was like having uh, a canvas and some paints. It it was like just let me get at it and I, the most rudimentary I you know recording, but I, I just wanted to see what it looked like when you threw these sounds, you know, onto a tape, and then listen to it back. Kind of a narcissism in as uh, as well, but no, it was more than that. I was sort of teaching myself how to produce. Yeah. I just it was just sort of uh, lucky to have that passion. And even though it was so rudimentary, uh, there was something magical about that. I did a lot of uh, sort of Robert Fripp-esque tape loop experiments with, uh, at the time, my friend Dave Foley of uh, our mutual pal Paul Myers wrote a book on the kids in the hall, and Dave was one of the kids in the hall. Oh, oh, cool. Yeah. So we we used to, on weekends, we would uh, do these tape loop experiments. And there was just, even though it sounded like shit, there was something Mm. really magical about that sort of creative process. Just like what happens if 
Mm. You know, what happens? I, I spent, uh, I was like fascinated with chords on the piano. So I was going, well, what if I sing a C and then I sing an E and then I sing a G uh, and then I put a B on top and make a C major seven chord? You know, and I would just mm. sing like wild a cappella like that. And I was, and uh, of course, I just thought, I knew, like you say, I knew it wasn't great, but I, it was, it was the beginning of a fascination with, um, with, I think you would think recording techniques, because I spent so long in the studio mm -hmm. or engineering or whatever, but I was, I was interested in music. I was just coming at it from this like place coloring with sound rather than reading, um, the dots on a manuscript, you know, I'm, I, although I have good theory now, I, I could, I read like a three-year-old, you know, it's, but, um, because my brain, oh, it seems doesn't work like that. But when, when it's, when it's throwing sounds together, I, I, I know it needs something here. It needs something. Yeah. My boss actually, who was a, a pop impresario, Mickey Most, he had that thing where he talked about sound in colors. He literally said, we need something brown. And I guess, you know, would look at the arranger and go like, brown. And the arranger had to go, well, the arranger probably went, I think you probably mean like cellos and keep the string quite low and, um, and warm. I, I don't know myself. I, I don't know if you have that, but some people have that kind of it's called a, it there is a synesthesia there you go thank you very much mm -hmm. yeah and and back then it just seemed like oh well, he's the boss so he's making all these hits so um yeah somebody else who uh, has synesthesia and somebody you worked with is andy partridge of xtc is that so yeah oh, did, right. you know, so i guess you didn't notice that then when you were in the studio with him there's a lot of chat with andy um, and not necessarily about around color, you know, it's definitely about sound, you know, very, very detailed, um, uh, demands. Mm. And that's, that's usual for a client. If you're a mixer that, that, uh, there's two ways it can go. They either say, can you make it sound like this? Or they don't know how it should sound. So, you know, you do it, you do what you think are the best decisions for, for what you have in front of you. Yeah. Um, How much did your love of and exploration of uh, Todd Rundgren's material influenced um, what? Well, certainly what you're doing now and what I've been listening to in Astral Drive. But in the early days, how much did he influence your sort of approach to the studio? Um, I suppose because you know, being like 13 or 14, we were already writing songs and, and mm -hmm. demos, maybe like you. Um, and I was fascinated. There was just something transcendental about his records that, um, you know, they talk about the, you know, God, Todd, the church of Todd. Yeah, right, right. And, but I was, I was, I was in it. I was just, his records just fascinated me more than anybody else's. And, he began to realize that a lot of the times he was over recording, you know, like t getting tape compression, using compressors, using equalizers to create kind of false 
kind of unnatural sounds, but that but were really cool and exciting. Mm. And I think most of all, uh, for me as a producer, he made compelling sounding records. You just kind of knew it was, it sounded a bit thrown together. But it wasn't even that when I listened to them then. I just thought, wow, what what the hell is going on here? I you know, I really want to know how you how how you do that. Of course, you know, you just have rudimentary you have the basic instruments to mess around with when you're in a youth club band. But um you know, and eventually when you get to fine compressors and fancy EQs and then you start going, Oh, this is that sound like if you crank the compressor on the over the drum kit it suddenly goes like that's a wizard of true star <laughs> there it is <laughs> and so and, and, uh, but not having the quality like he was surrounded by some great musicians well as always has been right hey smart move <laughs> how, do I, how do i make my records sound better you know get some really get siegler and and uh, Ralph Shucker and uh, mm. Moggy Klingman, you know, r really great players and go, oh, this is my song. And then they kind of elevate it to <laughs> as good as it can be. Um, although, as I understand, he would generally write chord progressions. They would they would make that sound great, make a great track. Mm. And then he'd have some idea of a melody, but the... I think that's his sort of process is the last thing, not the last thing, but the lyrics and the actual lead vocal would be probably one of the last things to go on to bring it all together. I think that's really an interesting approach. I don't know if you've tried that, but uh, I do it every now and then, especially with Astral Drive. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, um, I mean, that's how I write, but it's also how Bowie wrote. Uh, it was all about the chord progressions, and we would save the melody and the lyrics till the, the last. In fact, is uh, that so? Okay. Yeah, Tony Visconti yeah. would would often complain that uh, yeah. you know it took him so damn long to get the damn lyric done, and they'd already finished the track. Right? It's like David, come yeah. on, <laughs> yeah. What a genius producer, Tony Visconti. Oh, God. tell me, yeah. And Have Mick you ever worked in the room? Oh no, uh, I. I I had a nice Facebook comment from Tony once because it was Paul Myers. I'd done uh, Paul Myers podcast. Yeah. And I guess he's a friend of Paul's. Yeah. And, and me, and there's a picture of me and Paul goofing around and, um, to sort of announce the podcast and, and Tony Visconti said, I, I thought, Oh, is he being like tongue in cheek? You know, it was complimentary. Like, you know, like he knows how to make records or something like that. But but there was a there was a kind of a feel I can't remember exactly what it was but it could have meant something like that guy's a fucking idiot or, you know <laughs> but I took it as he's a genius <laughs> but Tony Visconti so many great hit records oh yeah um, yeah um, back then um, when you're you're starting out at Rack Studio and you're working with people like you know, Mickey Most and uh, Steve Lillywhite and uh, Alex Sadkin were you listening actively listening to other people's productions to get ideas would you be listening to Tony's work on on Bowie or Bolin or Sparks or whatever and looking for ideas yeah I think uh, because I was at a studio from the moment I left school I was very lucky to get a job at a great studio Mickey Most was my boss Mm -hmm. So I'm on sessions where I'm watching 
one of the greatest record producers at work, mm. like making bizarre, what would seem like bizarre decisions, like get that two-inch tape box, tape it to the snare drum, and the drum hit that. That's the snare now, is a two-inch tape box. Oh, wow. And things like, oh, you know, like, okay, let's double the bass with this pig-nosed bass, a fuzzy, with a kind of a fuzzy tone. Um, always kind of um, looking for sounds. Right. And, of course, Mickey's great strengths with spotting songs um, and great singers and putting them with great singers. But all the time... I was lucky enough to work with great producers and shitty producers too. Right. There were guys, after a while, you, you, I was relatively, you know, say about 18 or 19, and you start realizing, hmm, that session with Steve Lillywhite, he seemed to know what he was doing, and that sounded good. Next album, because you're doing one after another, or a single or whatever, you're going, this doesn't sound very good. And I think the band are okay, but the producer is making some kind of, um, just not not making a compelling record. And uh, so, and then work with Alex Sadkin with this meticulous detail to groove. And um, so Mickey was all about songs. Steve Lillywhite was great with bands, creating, um, making okay bands sound really, really exciting. I don't know, like magic. And Alex had um, a very scientific approach. That's not wrong, because it was also... He would go for a groove, for a bass line. He, he loved James Brown, all this. So I was... With these three great producers, um, I was getting... Uh, being mentored in some way. But, I mean, it's like going to university and you've got, like, three of the best people in the world to show you different ways of making a record yeah. you've also got another seven guys who are showing you don't make a record like this don't alienate the band don't make the drums sound shitty don't put up with bad takes don't kind of bore everyone to death you know it's so uh it's an apprenticeship I sense that the one thing that they had in common is that they were all looking for a groove or a feel or a, a performance that it wasn't so much about how things were put together technically, but about getting something that sounded exciting. Yeah. You know, um, what I've discovered in my, you know, 45 years is that nobody talks about flop records. Mm. Everybody talks about hits. They want to know about the hits. Mm. How did you make that hit? And, um, that's what those guys were focused on, right. you know. And when you when it comes to um, when you strip away the rom romance of the music business, it's really difficult to make a living, you know. And the way you make a living is you deliver a hit every, you know, few years if you can. Um, and that's what Mickey certainly, you know, Mickey was just like. Uh, a uh, great businessman too you know he had the publishing he owned he, he owned the record company but um every, but, but with Mickey and Alex and, and Steve they were they were honing in on how am i going to make this get on the radio um and um which which back then that was every if you didn't 
you know, if you didn't get on the radio, you were it, the whole project was sunk. Right. It was it was pointless. It was pointless. You're talking about hits, and one of the things that hit me um, listening to a lot of your music over the past three, four weeks. I mean, I've been listening to a lot of your music for years, but um, specifically focusing on Astral Drive and this fabulous new record. Uh, now that I have your oh, attention, you. it's oh, it's it's brilliant. Is you just have a knack for writing great hooks and hit singles? Every every song on Now That I Have Your Attention, every song off the Astral Drive Orange album, it's a friggin' hit. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Are you setting out to write? Is that sort of your mindset? Is I've got this architecture to write a hit or is it just come natural? Well, uh, you know, having spent a long, ultimately, although I worked in studios, I always wanted to be a songwriter. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't very good when I was a teenager, a late teenager. In my 20s, I was gradually catching up. Um, so uh, then I spent a lot, once I had a hit and everybody came knocking on my door saying, will you co-write with me and mm -hmm. co-produce, which was great. That, that You know, that was wonderful. Um, I, yes, I guess it's just in my in my DNA now. I wish I could still have hits. I still feel like I have a hit in in me. The chances of a, a silver-haired um, old geezer having a hit are pretty <laughs> small. But um, you know, I just um, it's very difficult to get songs placed. There always was. Maybe right. just after the success of Torn, right. I was thinking about that this morning. When Torn hit, I, it was like every writing session, the song ended up on the album. Everyone. Right. Right. Like, and even my manager would pitch my old songs. They'd get cut. Wow. And, and you, you realize the glow of an international hit is so strong. Mm -hmm. um, and then a few years goes by and you haven't had another hit. And now you're back to writing 50 songs a year. Um, maybe if if you get five covered, that's that's a great year, mm. you know. Um, and then maybe every few years you have another hit, fingers crossed. Mm. But as towards the, the, that's very kind of you to say all the hooks. But it, that's I, I that's part of the innate thing I had when I was first wrote a song when I was like twelve or thirteen. I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, I gotta hit a, I've gotta hit a hook pretty soon like right. we all grew up with the Beatles and the record the first beat the first downbeat you're like oh crikey <laughs> you know if it's a ballad or if it's a mid-tempo if it's a Ringo song you just go like they're making it happen right away right. and um, I, I mean I don't have I wish I had McCartney's melodic gifts I wish I had John Lennon's artistry um, but um I think you do I fairly do. well on your own, Phil. Uh, uh, thanks. Okay. That's kind of you. Yeah, it means a lot to me. The song is everything. If you get the, mm. you, as you know, as a musician, when you make a record, if if the song, if the melody and the lyrics are right, the energy, it just comes out of that. Yeah. Everything you play sounds great when the lyrics and the melody are right. You could go, oh, I'm going to try this kind of guitar, or we could put strings on it, or what about this bad synth sound? If the lyrics and the melody are going, are, are all in place and you and have a, a message or an intriguing fresh take on, on an idea, 
then everything else falls into place. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's what you're always looking for. Well, one of the things that I think you really excel at, and you excel at many, but insofar as constructing a hit single, I mean, you're looking for the hooks, you're lo looking for the ear candy, but there's also where to add space. And uh, one of the I, a great uh, example of that is Thompson Twins' Hold Me Now, where, you know, you sing that first line, but then there's <laughs> space to breathe, you know? Yeah. This, this day and age, I mean, you don't see that. There's no room. It's just ear candy wall to wall, right? Yes, it is. I, uh, that's Tom Bailey's uh, songwriting. But you're right. It, it uh, That's something I'm still learning about is is creating a bit more space in the melody um you know they always like the jazzers kind of always say like it's about the spaceman and <laughs> you know well they do and then yeah, you go yeah. and at least the phrases you hear when you're a youngster like less is more which is mm. the same thing you go less is more what does that mean was it and then you at least listen to a beatles record and it's like the the less stuff there is on their records it's just like revolver or something like that you can hear every stroke of the rhythm guitar and, you know, the bass line, whatever. But, um, yeah, Hold Me Now is a great example of, um, uh, yeah, we were pretty hot then. We were pretty hot at making records, I think. In Astral Drive, um, the, the three Astral Drive albums, there is a, a very specific sort of homage to Todd. Mm -hmm. Did you set out to write three records that were an homage to Todd or did that just happen? <laughs> the first one was very, very heartfelt. Uh, I'd had a period of like bad health and, um, and I just sort of moved away from the pop business. And in order to sort of rediscover my love of music, I just went, I'm just going to, I'm going to make an album like, Actually, I didn't start saying I'm going to make an album. I just made one song, um, which is a song called Wishing I Could Change the World, which, and I just said, and I was just like, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And sure enough, it came out like with this sort of bit of a backrack melody, and the Todd chords, the kind of overdriven sounds that he used. And I was like, wow. And then I just did another one, and I did another one. And so the fact, it is like an homage to Todd, but it, I'd been, I'd been um, devouring those you know the great records of the 70s and the 80s of his oh sure uh, um as a as a kid and even when i was you know getting a name as a as a mixer or a producer when i went home i'd still be checking out i could when todd's new album came out it was really exciting mm -hmm. you know what's he gonna do this time and and you know that thing he has the blue-eyed soul i think i found particularly attractive when he went down those paths i like the power pop too i guess that's what was fun about him was was just all these eclectic influences somehow united by his you know the background vocals or the way 
he's just he's playing everything yeah. so i i guess i mimicked that and because i studied i really had studied his music that it starts the choices came out sounding like an homage to todd that's cool that's in fact it's flattering you know some people said oh it's the missing the fifth side of something anything it's really nice right. kind of um i wish i had his voice he's he's he, he, back then i found particularly when when he hadn't really developed as like a technically amazing singer i thought he was very soulful the naivety in his voice was was um he could I I listen back to him now. One of my favorite songs, like the first line, is so out of tune. Right, and he's it, just gone like, well, I don't know, I don't know what his process is, but uh, he'd obviously decided that was good enough. <laughs> and um, so, but yeah, there's a quality to his voice which he still has that uh, I I wish I had that 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 larynx, you know, like that arrangement of vocal cords and that talent. Like like our Canadian friend, the Groover from Vancouver, you know, uh, Brian is just like ridiculously good. Yeah. yeah. Three take, three, t he, it was the songs we've written together. He could do three takes and the, the different performances, they've all got attitude. He throws away lines, he's pitching, his, the excitement, it's just off the scale. Yeah. Ego. I wish I had that, man. I wish I had that. So you're working with Brian Adams. Uh, I mean, superstar. What were you offering him as a songwriting collaborator that somebody else would? Uh, well, I always think uh, Jim Valance's the song, the, the, the tunes that he wrote with Brian, having played many of them live, I always think they really stand the test of time. Summer of '69, you know, right. or the the big big uh, classics, more more the up tempo ones. But um, when Torn happened, I, I, my oldest friend in the music business had now become like a f fairly powerful A and R man. We'd met each other when we were eighteen. The guy called David Rose, and he was like a just a hanger on for a rock and roll band, and I was a lowly tape hop. And now suddenly he's at A&R and A&M, and I've got the biggest record in the world. And he calls me up, Phil, do you want to work with, do you want to work with Brian Adams? <laughs> and, uh, I, and of all the calls I got, I was like, yeah, I, I really want to do that. So I went round, Brian used to live in uh, Chelsea, and I went round his house and I played him a couple of ideas. And I was like, oh, man, I've blown this, you know. I, he was he was responsive and uh, and generous. And then just before I walked out the door, I said, I'm going to play you one more idea that I've got on this DAT. Remember DATs? I do. Like, um, <laughs> and it was a kind of, uh, anyway, so it was the start of a song called On a Day Like Today. And he, like, he, he went like Mickey Mouse, he went... The lasers were like, we're working on Mark One, wow. you know, like that. And we wrote the second verse, wrote the second chorus, wrote the bridge, you know. Um, he came over to my, you know, like hovel and recorded the vocal. And um, and we suddenly we had a great vibe. Yeah. And then the next idea I took round to his in Chelsea, 
uh, was, you know, like a half finished thing with like, I think this is the chorus. I like this verse. Is it going anywhere? And then like, he goes, well, we should go here in the B section. And why don't we finish? You know, why don't we have the payoff on the choruses? How do you feel tonight? And it was like 20 minutes later, we've got this song done, you know, becomes the opening track on, on his on a day like today album. So it was really, um, and then over the years, uh, I've you I always pitch him ideas, and um, get very brief <laughs> responses. Well, what is it that he brings to the table that, say, somebody like your friend Shelley Pakin wouldn't? She brings a pop sensibility. Brian has the thing. He's a writer, but he's also the artist. Mm. So immediately, if the if your lyrical idea is is something he can't get behind. Eh, Unless he says, let's let's completely change this, let's change the U to I, which he's very good at. I had a hit here with a, a female artist called Pixie Lot, yeah. and the, we we were doing the, a demo, and the song was called um, "I'm Gonna Cry You Out," so it's actually passive. And then we had the the genius thought of going, "You'll have to cry me out." Suddenly, the singer is now owning it, saying, right. fuck you, excuse my language. And, and now you've got, a t suddenly it's a very different feeling. And I guess Brian would, or Shelley would do that too, that kind of like, would, would take maybe a half-baked idea I have and go, I can see what you're trying to do, but what if we went, if we changed the sex of the person singing it and, and, and all of a sudden... You know, the lyrics are so important. Everybody, Many people, especially guys, go, I never listen to the lyrics. But if you sing shitty lyrics to a great song, everybody go like, ah, you know. <laughs> so um, I guess Brian has a focus on what is good for his, the, usually what is good for the record he's making right now. Right. Or, or uh, unless he's got, like, if somebody's asked him to write a song for a film, um, but he brings a, 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 a um, yeah, laser-like focus. Yeah. yeah. On the topic of collaboration, um, a recent collaboration you had was with our mutual friend Paul Myers um, on a song called Amnesia. Um, uh, yeah. I want to ask you about that. But first, I just wanted to read something that Paul, I, I just reached out to Paul and asked him about his thoughts around that collaboration. And he said uh, as follows, first off, Phil took my simple hook and put it into this whole other realm. And I was blown away when I first heard it. And I really love where he took the lyric. We both kind of met over mutual admiration for Todd Rundgren. And I have a lot of unfinished Todd inspired material. So after he released the first Astro Drive record, I knew we would be friends. Then I discovered that he was a fan of my book about Todd Rundgren, um, which I have two copies of. Uh, yeah. and his record label sought me out to do a bio for Astro Drive a year later when I was visiting England, and I arranged to meet him in the studio of The Swap, which is where you are now. Yeah. Um, tell me about what you did with when he, because I'm not sure what sort of form it was when Paul gave it to you. What did you do to it? Because it is an absolutely stunning song.
Well, it's that's that thing. Probably I'm now reacting like Brian would to an idea I would pitch to him. You know, uh, I, I think Paul had sent me a couple of things, and you know, you have to be professional to go like I, I, I like that, but I don't love it. Right. Uh, and then he he sent me the, this track, which had a really nice toddy kind of mm. piano part, and it was very simple. And I th and I just knew like the moment like you hear four or eight bars, and I go, I, I can do something with that. So I said, oh, let me leave that one with me, and then maybe six months later, I, I handed in. You know, um, and I, and sometimes you got to wait for the right lyrical, like why am I writing this song? And and I saw this play, and uh, and it was about amnesia, about a guy who uh, falls off like a bridge, and he's with some down and outs, and um, he seems like a nice guy, and gradually as as his memory comes back to him, you realise he's. He's not a nice guy at all. His family hate him, and I just like that idea of of uh, what would happen if if you started again, you know, with your life, even if you were, I guess, had the traumatic experience of having full-on amnesia. Um, so when I had that idea, and then I and then I forced it into uh, <laughs> into Paul's changes and. Um, it's, 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 I think it's probably, for people listening, it's probably over-rich. You know, it's, it's quite kind of cordy. And, um, but I had fun doing it. And as you say, you know, Paul, Paul was like cheering from the side. Well, interesting about Amnesia. Now, number one, as I said, it is an absolutely stunningly gorgeous song. And it really does bring me to tears every time I listen to it. And wow. I, listen, I listen to it a lot. So, oh, wow. But what's interesting is that it's much different from most of your other work, at least over the last sort four or five years, in that both the Astral Drive project and with your new album, they're very joy-filled songs. I yeah. you know I've been oh. listening to it on repeat and repeat and and I'm yeah. bouncing in my seat but it's a real sort of sense of joy that it brings you where does that come from specifically with the now that I have your attention album I think I set out to make something that was had a more uh tongue-in-cheek vibe mm -hmm. and uh you know it kind of borrows from Jeff Lynne's productions Tom mm -hmm. Petty um Traveling Wilburys and um you know and those tunes are generally um <clears throat> even something like xanadu i mean what a great production that was oh yeah i don't i don't it's been so nice that so many people have said that yeah. i i don't think i set out to do it but it just like you know you have a bunch of songs uh, and uh, you know like you get 20 or 25 and then you go like well which is the best 10 and that and so many people have said um you know that they enjoy that the humor and the, the throwaway throwaway kind of quality um but i was having fun doing it so i guess that kind of helps whereas amnesia is more of a kind of like oh my it's a bit doomy yeah, <laughs> yeah. i'm the type of person who listens to a song uh, from a, an emotional perspective before I actually start to listen to the lyrics and break it down. So it's my initial reaction is always what drives me emotionally from the music and uh, everything on Orange and everything on Now That I Have Your Attention is really 
really joyful and uh, uh, I can dream waterfall um, my god they're they're just great a fast car of course off of now that I have your attention great video by the way thank you thank <laughs> I you love that. oh Bernard there's a lot of major chords too I think right. when you um, or major keys right uh, a lot of those tunes I think some people it's quite diff it can be daunting this is again kind of technical but it can be to write in major keys which a lot of the now that i have your attention it is uh, it's just like full of those uh, very bright chords um the astral drive thing it has the sort of poly chords where it's it's um what's the word when you it's kind of it's bittersweet right um um but it's generally the the um on the orange album they they, they are major keys, but with that, uh, as a musician, you would know, you know, those richer chords that kind of that, uh, give off a kind of melancholic vibe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was uh, talking to my friend, um, Jordan Zadarosny. He's a, a band called Blinker the Star. He's worked with Courtney Love and Lindsey Buckingham, Chris Cornell. Wow. Uh, he's got his own little studio, and we uh, we record all of our albums up at his little studio. And uh, I was talking to him about your influence uh, on him in terms of the production style. And he was, um, he had cited specifically Thompson Twins Hold Me Now as one of, and quote unquote, one of the best mixes ever. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, he says uh, most of the mixes he's done in the last little while are hugely influenced by how the drums and bass hold together, particularly on Hold Me Now. Talk to me about how that came together. Um, so as I said uh, earlier, uh, Alex Saker was producing, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, and I was engineer. We had just done a Duran Duran record in Australia, like the hottest band in the world at the time. Yeah, we got on the plane. Well, I actually got on the plane with the Duran Masters, and woke up like a day later in Heathrow. I was so exhausted, um, and then we went to Rack, and we mixed "Hold Me Now." And um, because my my good friend Will Gosling had actually recorded the track with Tom, with Tom Bailey, you know Tom from the Thompson Twins yep. was just terrific musician, mm -hmm. and I think we uh, when we got the we probably re uh, uh, redid the bass. I would imagine Alex was so about getting the bass groove um, together and re-recorded the lead vocal. Mm -hmm. And then I had one of those kind of flow state moments when I was mixing it. And I just went, there was this digital delay, um, digital echo machine called a Lexicon uh, 480, I think it was by then. And I just went to the, I knew the sound that was going to work. And it was this massive, um, we used to call it old man echo. That's mm -hmm. what Alex called it. It's, it's called when you put pre-delay on echo. So if you put it on a snare, most reverbs say we get you go. Bah! But with a pre-delay, it goes. Bah! Right. Bah! It comes, uh, uh, you can either put it in time or not in time. It doesn't have to be in time. It's amazing. People always like time their delays and it's just just put a chaos delay on there and it'll you'll get like, whoa, what the, what's going on? So I dialed this in and and um, you know, like I say we were jet lagged and whatever and the mix was just like bam, 
There it was. This was just sometimes when you're mixing, um, uh, there can be a key like that. Just if you pick the right reverb and you put it on the right things. And of course, Tom had recorded some great parts. Um, Shazam, there it is, you know. Um, and it's just wonderful that your friend is uh, vibing on that mix. You know, I, I, I we did get a um, gra Grammy nomination for that album. Right. Didn't did, didn't win. Right. Um, and uh, but and I've got to tell you. I, uh, the record, those are the days the record company paid for me to fly to Los Angeles to go to the Grammys. Yeah. And when they do best engineered pop record, it's about half past seven in the morning. Uh, and it's and there are ten people in the auditorium, and one of them, and one of them is Michael McDonald. Oh wow! <laughs> not not for best engineer pop record, but he was picking up, you know, best, you know, he he won something, and and he turned up. Of course you would. I I turned up hoping that I, I might have that chance. But uh, yeah, a lot of people. It's a it's a kind of a shame that Thompson Twins. You know they they haven't had quite the revival as uh, of I guess Homie now will will live live on, but um, they're not sort of looked back on with a reverence as uh, as like XTC or other bands from that time. Right. Um, I just want to stay on the topic of drums for another second um, for all the geeks in the audience. Uh, <laughs> talk to me about the drum sound that you got for um, the pornography record by The Cure, because that's got to be one of the most iconic sounding albums wow. ever, right? Well, thank you. Um, it seems to, at the time, we just did it. Well, at the time, I was the staff engineer. I was that, you know, I. Um, but you produced this one. I ended up getting a co-production co credit. You know, at the end, Robert's because I had, right, without a doubt. I, and and Robert uh, at the end say said, "Oh, we're going to get you. You're going to have a co-production credit." Um, the great thing about the studio complex where I worked, which is RAK, R-A-K, mm -hmm. in Northwest London, Mickey Most's studio complex, Studio One was a big wooden room that had been like a civic center uh, or like a town hall mm -hmm. that was then converted into a studio. So, uh, and there was a halfway down the room, there was kind of uh, sliding doors so you could actually put the drummer in the back room, ha, ha, put the the way Steve Lillywhite did. That's where I'd learned that from. Put ambient mics, as you know, mics that were a good distance from the drum kit, mm -hmm. and stick a limiter on it and crank it, and you would get this uh, super exciting sound. And though because they the, because the bass player and the guitarist were in the other room, there was very little bleed which can cause chaos in a, in a recording if you do something uh, as, uh, as kind of um, aggressive as uh, compress the room mics. Sometimes some people call them room mics. But, um, and the band were just totally into it. And I was kind of channeling my A Wizard, A True Star, the Todd kind of acid record. Um, yeah, I was 21, you know, it's like, I, I don't, and we, 
and the band, we were all the same age, 21, 22. And they just, you know, somebody let us make a record. You know, it's outrageous. <laughs> and and at the time, I thought I was really, I got on with the, with the band. I think we were, uh, you know, joking aside, we everyone was f pretty intent on making like a great record. Mm -hmm. They were super well rehearsed, like really well rehearsed. Uh, it was no fluke, you know, you could, um, uh, and, and Lowell, who was, anybody who saw Lowell play drums, you go, well, he's maybe not the most natural drummer, but the smart thing that he did and that was right for the band, he would basically loop himself he would play a very simple, that's not right. He would play uh, the right beat for the song, an emotional kind of find a groove, and then he repeat that over and over again. No fills, just start, hit record, three, four, play that beat for the next four or five minutes as the, ba as the band, um, as Robert expressed his song across, across that beat. So... It's nice that people talk about the drums, but you can't make a good drum sound unless the drummer is giving you something that, that if there'd been fills, if there'd been too many crash cymbals, it would have sounded horrible. Right. It would have just been too much for your ears, like sonically. But because he did, as, as, as I said, like loop himself, then it's, it became um, more, um, yeah, it just became a thing. And yeah. a big part, a big part of that album is um, Lowell's hypnotic timekeeping, and this kind of animal um, energy to his drums, which I was able to kind of hype. Yeah. You know, I think there's a, you know, you know, if you make records, you tend to hype things. You, you go like, well, that sounds good, but what if it sounded like? Twice as good. One of the things that you often did back then, I don't know if you still do it, is uh, print uh, the effect yeah. to tape as opposed to recording it dry and adding an effect later. Why, <laughs> why, is there, why was there such an emphasis to record it dry instead of capturing a moment and recording it? Well, the thing is that the three producers we've talked about that were my mentors, that, that they would blink. It was like, if they had the sound, that's what we're recording. Right. Oh, but, but there's a, like a room mic that I left open that, no, that's what we're recording. Okay, there's a gate that's opening it. If they caught a vibe, they would go for that. Right. So, um, but, but other producers didn't want that. They didn't want... Uh, all the schmoors, all the delay and the um, reverb, you know that the talking to the Thompson twins when Alex uh, Tom was quite a nervous singer, oh. and uh, and uh, so he wrote great melodies, he wrote great songs, but he wasn't. Yeah. I think he he would admit himself, you know, that was recording the vocals was was uh, not easy. Mm -hmm. um, but I would, you know, put chorus and delay on. And maybe I wouldn't record the reverb, but but Alex was like, no, record that. It sounds good. I want that sound. Mm. I don't, you know, in two weeks' time when we come to mix it, I don't want to be saying, how did you get that sound? Record that sound right now. 
Um, if anybody ever had to mix our tapes back then, they were absolutely <laughs> because they'd put up, they'd go like, oh, well, we'll just, oh, my God, the lead vocal is, and they put up the backing vocals, oh, my God, there's a room on it. There's, there's, there's You know, there would be all, anything we could put on it to, to it just, so I learned that gating the drums, you know, that was like a, might have been a big no-no, like this process of, um, you you know what I mean? Like like turning a snare drum from going bah to going bah, right? And at which it might be something you do on the mix to try and create a very tight um, groove. But uh, if it sounded good whilst you're recording it, record it like that. Who yeah. cares? Yeah. yeah. Something that you recorded that was a little uh, drier. Um, uh, I guess about an eight, 18 months later is you were on tour with uh, with Robert and the Cure playing bass and you stopped in in Paris and you recorded Love Cats, <laughs> which was um, a much different sounding, uh, not just a, a different sounding production, but it was also a much different genre for Robert. Um, I just want to switch gears a little bit. You know, Pornography is this iconic goth album that everybody loves. Love Cats, everybody loves, but it was so significantly different. Mm. Were you, did you know that suddenly Robert was going to make this sort of dramatic change in genres? As I like to point out, I made the darkest Cure record and I made the lightest Cure record. Right. Um, we had, um, Robert was talking about quitting all the time then. I'd, uh, for what He was playing in the Susie and the Banshees at the same time. Right. He had a crazy um, workload. But we'd done this tour and in Soundcheck, he said, I, I think he had a cassette of the bass line and an, a, little, a little bit of tune that he'd worked on at home. And so we had me and Andy Anderson, um, R.O.P., the, the drummer. Mm -hmm. He had us kind of routine a groove in, in the sound check. I learned the bass line, albeit on electric bass guitar. Now, it's funny that um, the studio we got to in Paris was this, was twice the size of Rack. Oh. It was like for, for recording symphony orchestras. Oh, seriously, like a classical studio. There were timpanis, there were uh, glockenspiels, there was anything you wanted was lying around. Mm -hmm. The tack piano, which is a big feature, like not many studios had a piano with the tack tacks in it to give it that barroom sound. Um, so it was a treasure trove. But um, incredibly, um, I get, and I, you know, we had an acoustic bass, which I'd never played before. Suddenly, um, I guess we were, you know, kind of in a, we were in a good spot, I guess. Um, and this, so um, that song was very, very different to record to the photography. Basically, we did a piecemeal and he recorded his drums, I think just close mics, mm -hmm. kick and snare. I may have been one overhead, you know, um, so he did that for four minutes, just going, just he was a he was a really powerful drummer, yeah. but also a groover. 
so it was a very slow process and robert did the piano then i struggled doing the the, the upright bass uh, for the complete uh, as you've kind of pointed out a completely different palette of sounds to pornography a completely different process pornography was the tracks would go down with uh, robert uh, playing guitar simon playing bass low playing drums all the tracks went down like that right but but with uh, love cats it was more of a kind of a pop confection type of production where where you got one element right the drums then you got the next element right the piano then you got the double bass right and then so it was layer 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 and incredibly in five days we did three songs you know it's, wow. it's with that style but love cats was of course was the standout it's just one of those weird moments where things just sort of fall into your hands you know um Robert was, there's a kind of a guitar where he's mimicking a cat kind of in the alley. And that's where you hear, um, because I would have put the microphone away from the amplifier. So you hear the room then. Yeah, a really nice studio, studio des armées, I think it was called. But uh, you'll ha hopefully you'll get lots of people correcting me on that. Uh, <laughs> especially about with my French pronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> you are a producer, you're a songwriter, uh, you're a fabulous singer, an engineer, a mixer. Which of those hats is most you? Uh, I have always been the striving songwriter. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing, the other things, I, I was lucky enough to get a break in the studio, learn how to engineer from some great engineers, learn how to produce from some great producers. But I was always a, um, I was always trying to improve my chops as a player, and um, ultimately, you know, I wanted to be a songwriter. So, and and the funny thing is. Um, in my career, um, I, I had managers. Sandy Robertson was, was a, a, a very big influence on my career. He passed away quite recently. I drove him mad because I got the, I was getting mixing gigs, I getting producing gigs, and getting paid what at the time very, very well. Mm -hmm. And um, people would look at me and go, "Like, you're so young. How do you how do you know how to do this stuff?" Like, it's still I have a friend he goes how do you know you you don't seem to do anything and you just go well i did. but there's that book the 10,000 hours you know and i right. had done my 10,000 hours by the time we, we just were doing session after session orchestras tv tracks pop bands goth bands punk bands and working hours and hours and hours so to to most people i think when when perhaps they see me engineer or mix or produce they go like how do you know all that stuff because you don't look as though you're thinking about it mm. and it, because now um the funny thing is the irony being that i was like my skills in that area luckily became i could make a living from but i, I was trying to make my musician skills and my songwriting skills i was trying to get them up and i still am you you talked about being a producer for hire uh, an engineer for hire a songwriter for hire but you have such gorgeous vocals wow. um and uh, i love the the lush layers that you often put in um why not a singer for hire 
to be honest, if you've worked with great singers, mm. like like Brian, for instance, probably the, the best singer I ever worked with, but I've worked with plenty of other great singers, and you just... Uh, yeah, I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna be that. So that's probably why the skills, the the doing harmony vocals, which is another thing I love to to do, mm-hmm. and I'm still learning about that. About um, sometimes, you know, the sort of parallel movement is bad, and how to you can feel your way through it, but it's also nice to understand why. Um, Sometimes the wrong parts sound fantastic. Yeah. Um, and there's occasional... Um, but I always feel... I, uh, the great thing about doing Astral Drive and, and my a new solo album is I, I had to perform. I had to do, like, radio shows mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the mon- modern phenomenon of playing on Instagram Live, which I do quite a lot. I'll be there on Friday, um, 9 o'clock UK time. Please join me. But I did learn, I had to learn how to sing my songs. So my confidence grew. But Bernard, at the end of the day, it's like if you haven't, I I barely, when you hear great singers like my friend Kazim Sultan too, they, they just, they just, they pin notes to the, there's this thing that they do that, and he's taught me a lot actually he's always going like uh, you should breathe a little I wish I had those tips when I was 18 yeah. but I was always there was always a better singer in the band uh, usually so it's nice it's really nice that you that you've complimented my singing because it means a lot to me I've had to work really hard on on uh, developing my chops as a singer and there's, there's still a long way to go to go so i think by the time i'm about 83 i'm going to start peaking <laughs> hang around everybody uh, I, I don't know phil i think the work is paid off i think the brilliant vocals um and thank you someone thank you. who has seen you perform acoustically on instagram live the best uh, singer face ever <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> we always talk about the lead, uh, lead guitar face right but yes. uh, you, you have the perfect uh, singer face i presume i screw my face up when i sing <laughs> yes uh, quite a bit <laughs> all right, right it's such an effort i'll try and i'll, I'll try and refine that bernard i'll try and refine <laughs> no i <laughs> I'm, I'm complimenting you i think it's fantastic uh, um speaking of great singers you worked with patty mackaloon of pre- prefab spread yeah tell me about that experience well uh so that was about 85 and and um i was getting production gigs and uh, Prefab Sprout, we're a hot band that had an album out, and uh, which was really cool. But I don't think commercially had done very well. Um, and then their A&R man, Muff Winwood, brother of Steve Winwood, the older brother, oh, wow. who had played bass in Spencer Davis Group. So, so he was head of A&R at uh, what was CBS then. He'd signed Prefab Sprout. So I was contracted to do an A side and a B side. And um, I guess they had a really good drummer and uh, Neil Conti. So we recorded them off the floor at at, at Rack. And um, Paddy, who was principally a guitarist, but played those kind of backeracky chords on the song When Love Breaks Down. Mm-hmm. Just such a tender, emotional kind of musician. 
I think he very much sort of like felt his way through everything. So uh, the track went down it's because the drummer was so good. The first take went down, and, and I was like, that's it. Wow. Yeah, let's do another one. Let's just see. And the next one, and I don't think Neil himself was sort of like the Jeff Picaro vibe of like, no, you got it, man. You got it. You got it. You know, uh, except his English. Um, but it was so, it was like the first, so the first take that was that. Paddy had written this beautiful song this, uh, that's lasted and lasted. And so many people say, um, compliment me. And I go, well, that, that's really nice that I was able to frame this song um, with a couple of clever production tricks. When, when it came to singing, the band were all in the room. You know, we, we were in the control room together. Paddy's out uh, in the studio. A technique that I hate, by the way, when I have singers now, I have them in the same room as me. Okay. I hate that. I hated that when I was before, when I was the singer. And you look through the, into the booth and you, they're talking about me. I can't hear. <laughs> and they're actually going, should we have pizza or should we get noodles? Right. And, <laughs> but you're, because you're insecure. You're, um, so um, it got to the point, Paddy was singing, and I was thinking, I, I'm going to have to comp it, you know, the the um, production trick where you you get the singer to sing it four times, three times, and then you take get his best line from each of those takes, and usually uh, that will create a performance. Uh, and the band were adamant. They were like, no, 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 keep going, keep going. And uh, sure enough, he sang it in one go. No. Yeah. I think maybe punched in a line or two, you know, corrected a line or two. Wow. But um, so the, the guys in the band and girl, um, Wendy, when Wendy was, uh, was the backing singer, she has this beautiful, beautiful tone, very, very breathy. And um, we, uh, in, in the production, I used this trick that I'd learned from the engineer that taught me, Greg Jackman, and he borrowed it from 10CC, where you ma made vocal loops lo using. Right. Um, and it was love. a, yeah. yeah. And it took it took a long time, yeah. but it was so worth it because when that, I think up until the last day, I, I was like the kind of the producer sitting in the chair going, Jesus, it's missing something. It's missing something. And then I tried that, and the, everything fell into place. Well, you know what's interesting? Um, I mean, apart from the fact that Patty wrote a brilliant song, but um, kudos to you because the production of that song was unlike anything that I was listening to on the radio then. There was something so, I'm trying to find words to describe it, simple, clean, spacious, um, and, and it really stuck out beyond all Did of the it? other. Okay. Oh, re very much yeah. so. Um, so, you know, I, I, I ran out and bought Steve McQueen. Um, but yeah, what what was it about the production of that that was so different from everything else? I, d I don't know. I think maybe an innate trust of the song, mm -hmm. you know, because um, they're very interesting lyrics, aren't they? Yeah. And I've got to, talking to Muff Winwood. You know, he stuck by that band. The the song was released, flop. The song was uh, remixed by Tom for the album. You know, took my production, remixed it. Right. They released that, flop. Wow. Then they went back to the original mix. So the third time, no one would do that now. 
you know, like when Drake's record drops, let's say in the modern vernacular, it's got to be there. Yeah. And there's no, there's no, um, but back then it was, it was the perseverance of people always, you know, diss the record company, but Muff was like, he, uh, we started recording on the Monday. On Friday evening, he came to listen to the mix. He heard when love this was Buff Winwood, mm-hmm. heard the playback, and he said, "It's a hit." Mm-hmm. It's just like straight out. It's a hit. Mm-hmm. Play it on the small speakers, and then he made a couple of edit suggestions because um, the song was quite long. Mm-hmm. Um, but but at the end of the day, the version that was a hit was was the version that he had that he had heard but he stuck with the band he believed in obviously believed in Paddy's talent and uh, you know and Paddy went on to write many many other great songs yeah. and sadly I, I we haven't bumped into each other since yeah. so uh, yeah it, you, you certainly had some struggles over especially in the last 10-15 years I understood that he lost his eyesight for quite some time and then uh, yeah he got it back hopefully um and is back working on new material, and we would love to hear what he's coming up with. Um, Maybe he needs a producer. There you <laughs> Just well, saying. Just, well, <laughs> talk to me about a producer in the 21st century. You know, we're 2022. You're a man who has a, you know, credentials up the yin yang, um, uh, applauded uh, from all walks of uh, musical life. Why aren't you uh, producing any of these new pop acts? Well, Bernard, I think I reached my sell-by date as a producer, as a producer for hire. Um, there was, was a comf- you know, this is not hard to understand. You know, I, I had really got burnt out making records um, and had some ill health. And then I think I... The, Either the phone stopped ringing or I stopped p- picking up the phone. I mean, for a while, it was just I didn't want to do anything. And then, um, and that's okay. I, you know, I, I make my own records now, the Astral Drive, the, the new solo album. Occasionally, someone, one of my friends will, will say, can you help me out with this? Uh, like Gary Bright, the keyboard player from... Uh, uh, Brian's band made made a solo album, and and so I jumped in and mixed. And last year's Chasm Sultan album. Chasm Sultan. I did a Johnny Hates Jazz album where I was, you know, played played a lot of it and co-wrote with um, Micah Clark. But um, yeah, the phone just doesn't ring. So that's yeah. You just have to accept that that uh, that that's. I ha- I've had a fantastic career. Uh, I still love making music. I don't know who would call me to to make a contemporary record. I think probably if anybody called, they'd say, can you make a record that sounds like the one that you did when you were 22? <laughs> <laughs> and I would go, uh, wait a second. Uh, but, um, you know, you never know. Todd might call, say, that is never going to happen, by the way. Never, ever, ever. Why? Because Because he knows how to do it himself. I think the history of his production career has certainly proved hits and otherwise that it's his way or the highway. Wow. So <laughs> talk, nothing wrong could, with that. Talk to Andy Partridge about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, and who was right? Who was right? 
That, that was the best XCC yeah. album ever. Yep, and, uh, and and produced the, one of their biggest hits of all time. Yep. Let, let me tell you a story about that because I'm still in touch with Dave Gregory, who who oh, was right. the principal musician for the band. He would do the, you know, the tricky guitars. He would do the keyboards. He would do the string arrangements, and he said uh, they were recording one of the tracks at. Uh, in Mink Hollow, the, right. what was then Todd's studio. Right. And he, he had like a prophet or keyboard. Mm -hmm. And a track's going down, Dave playing the part, and he's like trying trying out different sounds. And it gets to the end of the, you know, the four-minute song goes by, and, and Todd goes, okay, what's next? And <laughs> Dave said, no, no, I was just trying to find a sound. It sounds, and Todd, Todd I won't do the... You know, but it was like, no, it sounds fine. And Dave was like, no, 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 no. I was just searching for a sound. It's fine. And he said, Dave was like, you know what? By the time it was mixed, it was fine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, the man has an ear. There's no question about that. And he's he's um, famous for uh, only wanting one or two takes anyways, right? I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I know from working with Chasm mm -hmm. that um, when they made the Utopia records, um, Todd would, like, if, if Chasm was singing the lead vocal, Todd would go, I'm going to go watch some TV. Let me know when you've finished, when you like the vocal. Wow. He'd come back and would pass, would not say do it again or anything. He'd go, trust, trust the musician that has figured it out. Right. Same with the bass lines. So I, I'm kind of, uh, these are anecdotes that, that I'm passing on, you know, third hand. Right. So, so um, I think very pragmatic approach. I think, I think he said something like about, uh, which I really enjoy, you can make a bad recording of a hit song and it'll be a hit. You can make a fantastic recording of a bad song and... And Louis, 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 but case in point, your point, you know, right? Louis, Louis, ah! <laughs> <laughs> smash, worldwide smash, still played at weddings. Amazing, yeah. eh? Yeah, yeah, you just, yeah. you just never know. So, if there's not going to be a Todd Phil collaboration in the future, <laughs> uh, and I think there still should be, um, would you? He could produce me. He could well, produce hey, me if it. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Is there going to be instead of an homage, uh, a Phil record of all Todd covers? I think that's called um, on the nose. Bernard, there's a phrase saying that's two on the nose. Uh, I think that the 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 uh, I've covered a few of his tunes. Yeah, and and um, you know what you discover is often there is only one way to do it, and it's the his tricks as an arranger, the mm. the backing vocal arrangement, the arrangement of the music. Like there's a reason he recorded it that way. Yeah, and. Um, you know, maybe the Isley Brothers' Hello, It's Me, that's a big departure from the original or, mm -hmm. or, or the two versions. Mm -hmm. But often if you stray too far from the architecture that is set out, um, that's what I've discover discovered anyway. And I, and, I, and I think it would be... Um, I like to have fun when I do his songs. I did one that was called Something to Fall Back On that was originally right. a, um, a cappella tune. I figured out a way to do that in my own way but otherwise it's like you you 
you know, you're messing with the best there. Oh, so. And it's a brilliant version. It really is. But oh, I, would, I would love to hear, you know, verb to love, real man, don't you ever learn, uh, wouldn't mm. have made any difference. I think I know, love, Phil Thornley yeah. versions of those could be pretty cool. <laughs> oh, I love all I love all those tunes, don't yeah. you ever learn. Oh, uh, yeah. Verb to love especially is just off the scale. Oh, is it? And not oh. many people know it. You know, it wasn't really? a hit. No, I, I think the Todd fans know it, but right. but um, and it's a very convoluted song, isn't it? There's a lot of changes, yeah. and, and um, you know, it's not a pop single, and and maybe that I I was talking um, with Chasm about that the other day, and I said, can you imagine what Marvin would have sounded like singing that tune? Right. Then it would have been a, then it would have been a hit, because the the majesty of the lyrics would have been, you know. Uh, it would have just all come into focus and people would go, what a great idea for a song yeah. to sing about what does love mean, you yeah. know? Um, well, there's such wonderful drama in that, that song and such great dynamic shifts. And again, an, another song that, uh, I'm being honest here, really brings tears to my eyes every time I hear it. So, Just mention on Verb, it's got John Siegler on bass. And yeah. it, like, you never... I don't know many Todd records where the bass is mixed that loud. Usually the bass was kind of ducked because he wanted to get it loud on FM radio. Right. But on that one, I think Siegler is a tasty, tasty player. Oh, yeah. Really. Like, oh, yeah. like in the James Jameson, not the James Jameson sound, but not, not to, I mean, we all bass players love James Jameson. He's, he's the heavyweight champion. He's the man. But uh, John Siegler did like his version, that sound, a very rich, and he actually played on on an Ast a new, uh, uh, an unreleased Astro Drive track. Just thought I'd mention that. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to hearing mm -hmm. that. Um, I, I just wanted we're going to wind down here because I've had you on for quite a, quite a while, and I really appreciate it. Um, but so many questions come to mind. Um, the Green Album is sort of a reimagined version of in many cases the the first album but you scaled it down and really showcases number one your great vocals and number two your piano playing which is fantastic oh thanks why were you inspired to sort of redo those songs in that fashion um i'll tell you uh, one man's name andrew campbell he's the head of the indie label that uh, who releases all my records low jinx low jinx he's the mad fool who keeps cheering from the sidelines he's uh he, he said uh i was all ready to do another album and he's and i think he was just like you know calm down like try and create a um song do versions of the songs that could get on what they now called like acoustic playlists right like in an attempt to try and get people to hear the music more and it was so it was a little bit of um a technical exercise, not something I would. It was it it was from his idea. Mm -hmm. um, so um, as was the now that I I have your attention. Um, I did one song called Twenty Second Century a couple of years ago, right. and he said, "Well, it's not Astral Drive. It's obviously not that, um, but I like it, and I'm going to release it." I started sending him more songs like that, and he said, "You've got to do an album of this this." So it's nice to have. Uh, for any artist, I think have a an A&R person, as they used to be known, someone that, that kind of gives some part management, part musical um, sounding board, 
to kind of go, I think this is a good, just just follow this. But yeah, back to uh, the Green album was, yes, was a kind of reimagining the songs from the desert, the, the original album. Yeah. I have to say the one that really stands out for me is No One Escapes. Uh, so oh. haunt, hauntingly gorgeous. Um, oh, thanks. I mean, really difficult material, and again, had me crying <laughs> while I'm driving. Uh, yeah. But it's just a, yeah. a gorgeous song, and uh, stripped yeah. down like that is just beautiful. Yeah. Another song about death. Wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was um, Gary Bright. When I used to play in Brian's band, I would travel in a limo with Gary the piano player Mickey Curry the drummer and we'd do these long four or five hour drives to, to you know around Europe or wherever mm -hmm. um, and the other other guys principals would be in different cars and Gary just came out with it one day he said what do you think of that he's got a lovely voice that's why he works so well with Brian because his voice is a similar timbre to do harmonies or whatnot right and he said I got this I've got this yeah I won't do his accent he said I have this title no one escapes and I was like Give it to me. I just like, <laughs> I just thought that is a great title. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and it is, about, it's a, it's, it is a song about um, mortality. Yeah. Um, thank you. No, thank you. Um, I want to wind down with a, a quick little game. I'm going to throw yeah. out a couple of names. And yeah. after each name, I just want you to tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Oh, okay. let me just get into a... Sure. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, um, I was watching Stephen Colbert the other night, and he right. did this thing yeah, to the to the audience. How is everyone? It doesn't matter. And just <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was so fresh, like like pretending you care. Yeah. Okay. I love the idea of this, Bernard. Okay. I love it. Here we go. Okay. Um, Edwin Collins. Funny. Um, Richard Butler. Fist fight. Oh, can you expand on that? He's uh, the only time a fist fight broke out in the studio was him and his brother, both talented. Richard, I think, um, you know, a great writer and unusual singer. But they would they would fight like they were 12 year olds. They literally had a fist fight in the control room. Oh, my. Shades of the Gallagher brothers and the Davies brothers, eh? I, I think you're the same dynamic. Wow. Yeah. Uh, um, Simon Le Bon. The writer of Duran Duran. I know that's not one word, mm -hmm. but songwriter. He, he had did so much heavy lifting for that band, in my experience working with them. They would give him a track, and then he would write the hook, the, the melody, the lyrics. And occasionally, in the spell I had with them, they'd say, write something else. The, the track is great, write another song. And he would. It just didn't get the kudos he deserves for basically being the writer of all those hits. Right. Everyone goes, Duran Duran. They don't go, actually, it was probably Simon staying up late at night going, uh, you know, Girls on film, or or, or or save a prayer. What a beautiful song that oh, is! Really? God, yeah. so you know, like the lyrics sometimes are like uh, I don't know what you're singing about, but everyone loves songs like that. I and yeah, I appreciate you uh, fleshing that out. And I just uh, on that note, what was that the experience like working on Seven and the Ragged Tiger? 
intense. Um, I was parachuted in because Alex was producing and they'd recorded tracks in South of France. They'd gone to, to uh, Montserrat, Air Montserrat, and then they'd end up in Sydney. And um, I had been producing other artists, and then he said, "Can you come and help uh, the overdubs and, and the mix? Do the mix? Mm -hmm. Which seemed pretty sexy, like the biggest band and pop band in the world at the time." Yeah. Um, and we did six weeks. We had one night off. It was just like fourteen-hour days. Um, it was. It was really. It was. Uh, yeah. It was one of the. I'm glad I was young when I did it. You just couldn't do it without that kind of without youthful energy yeah. um and the band you know they were younger than me so i was probably 24 so they were 23 21 oh. 22 under all this pressure yeah. and some they didn't deliver a great album but but they i think alex helped them deliver an album and that the kind of i guess uh kept tread tread water for their career for a year or two mm. um but yeah, it was re it was really intense. Not wow. not many laughs. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Okay, back to the one word responses. Robert Smith, talent. Oh, indeed. In in spades. Tom mm. Bailey, school teacher. Why? Uh, he was a, he was a school teacher. Oh, okay. And he bought a certain amount of. Uh, uh, even though he was only a few years older than me, there, there was a certain amount of. Uh, like if me and Alex and Mike Nisito, who was our tape op, my, my best friend, mm -hmm. we kind of be having a laugh. We got on very well. And then Tom would come in and you go like, oh, Tom, <laughs> come on, come on, guys, come on, guys, let's get some work done. And we're just like, you know, just having a uh, having our five or ten minutes of just going like uh, kick back and yeah. not it was not like we were getting high or anything. We were working hard just. Uh, um, but he, so he bought a s certain amount of that um, patronizing is too harsh, but there was a there was a certain amount because he was such a scholar of music. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he ran a type ship probably in the band, too. So right. he'd, he he once asked us to, to, when we were making into the gap to work on um, Christmas Day. Oh, Seriously, really? <laughs> they were like, <laughs> having said that, we just spent four weeks in the Bahamas recording oh, the well. <laughs> back in tracks. But we were like, no, nah, man, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. We're not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Final one, Brian Adams, hardest working man in show business. In one word, driven. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can certainly see that for sure. Yeah, he he works. When you're on the road, he's on his laptop doing a conference about a mix for a film. Um, he kind of gets himself together 10 minutes before you go on stage, gets everyone in, like, come on, guys, you know, a kind of uh, football team um, just before you go on, gets the vibe, go, gives, goes out to the perform live, gives that 100% every king time yeah. it's su it's such a lesson in not treading water not taking anything for granted he works harder than the crew mm. than the band he comes off stage um you know d w w has done two and a half hours back onto his laptop checking out some mix some lyrics 
It's just wow. unbelievable. And I always thought I, I, I inherited a pretty good work ethic. Mm. And maybe up until I was about, yeah, up until I was about 50, I used to work too hard. Yeah. Um, but um, he is still b burning like he's 14 years old and he hasn't got a dime in his pocket. Wow. It's, 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 and it's kind of sometimes he, he looks around and he's, and he's can't understand why anybody else isn't keeping up, <laughs> you know, and he has, he, he looks after himself, he's in great shape, vegan yeah. uh, and, and whatnot, but, and then he's doing his photography, right. then he's flying here, then he's flying there. Right. And, and, um, yeah, it, 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 it's, it, it's driven. One last question before I let you go. Who was the most fun to work with? Ooh. Um, usually with every band, there's one person in the band that you get on very well with. Right. Um, and I think uh, in Edwin Collins' band, I was in his band for a while, mm -hmm. Edwin very very funny guy but witty you know um unusual kind of take on everything mm -hmm. and the, the guitarist in the band at the time um was you know he was a he when he was off the road he was a college lecturer oh. you know that was his day job you know you go to a france and then he go back to the college to i think he was an art uh professor or something but his, his name was Steve Skinner, and I swear you had to say, stop. <laughs> like, I am la You would just be laughing so much. You just said, please, stop. And, he, of course, he would just... Once he found a vein, right. you know, a vein of comedy, he would... Uh, so that in the tour bus, there would be Steve and Edwin, and it was just like a riot of laughter and... Um, of course, we all fell out in the end, but <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, not really. Not not really. You know, those things come come to a natural end. But yeah. I, I do. There were some very painfully funny episodes, none of which I can recall. But we had yeah. so Edwin and Steve Skinner, I think, were the were the Morecambe and Wise of uh, the music business in in my in my in my experience. Yeah. Um, Phil, thank you so much for your time, for being so open and honest and sharing these stories. Uh, just, you've led such a fascinating life, and uh, uh, I'm certainly looking forward to everything else that you do in the years to come. Thank you, Bernard. You know, you've, uh, that last section, the one, um, that was really good fun, really good fun. But some some very, um, you took me down a uh, memory lane, down some, some dark alleys there that... Uh, but, thank, but thanks for inviting me on. It was very... Uh, you know what this show is? It's the essence of cool. <laughs> essence of cool. Essence of cool. You know I'm going to be yeah. using that forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Astral Drive with the essence of cool. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Oh, 
I'll be honest, I was on a high for days after speaking with Phil. Not only was he by far the most fascinating person I've ever spoken to, he was also one of the sweetest and kindest too. For more info on Phil, check out his record label, lojinx.com, that's L-O-J-I-N-X, or follow him on Facebook or Instagram at Phil Thornley. This is Bernard Fraser saying thanks for listening and please support local independent artists. Thank you.